Hello and welcome to the podcast of BMJ Military Health, the home of research, reviews and commentary on the key issues in military health from around the globe. Lessons learned from more than a century of conflict are supplemented by up-to-the-minute evidence from practitioners the world over. You can listen to the podcast directly on the journal homepage, or you can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing using your preferred podcast app. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast, so please do leave us a review on iTunes or get in touch if you have any ideas for content you'd like to hear. I'm Captain Jonathan Hearn, and together with Captain Amrit Sandy, we'll be hosting this session. Today we'll be discussing the future of surgical training, and we're joined by two remarkable surgeons who have been heavily involved in surgical education. Uh, Professor Peter Brennan is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon who is on the Royal College of Surgeons England Council, a widely acclaimed human factors expert, Grey's Anatomy editor, and has recently led the revision on the MRCS exam. And uh, Professor John Lund, colorectal surgeon and uh, current Joint Committee on Surgical Training Chair and Head of the Department of Division of Surgery in the Graduate Entry Medical School in the University of Nottingham. He has founded the highly successful resources LearnColorectalSurgery.com and School of Surgery. Both these surgeons are widely published and highly regarded in their field. I just would like to thank you both for joining us. Thank you very um, much, John. And uh, we'll just get on to the first question. Um, So there's been much anxiety amongst uh, the trainee cohort about uh, where surgical training is going. What's the plan for the next year and where do you envision it going in the next two to three years? So I'll, I'll, I'll go first then. Um, so I think there are two things, aren't there? There's, there's the, the what was the plan for the next two, three years, new curricula, and then the, how the plan has been superseded by COVID and the effects of COVID. <clears throat> so I suppose if I deal with COVID first, it's had a, a huge impact on surgical training um, in all aspects. I mean, one of the things we do focus on sometimes perhaps too much is, is operative experience, but we know that operative experience is easy to measure. And for all specialties, a very similar picture where elective activity or overall activity has been reduced by over 50% as recorded in logbooks. And uh, it's particularly in the elective uh, part of uh, surgical experience that has been the biggest impact that hasn't come back to normal over the end of the summer and is now dipping again as the second wave starts to bite. So um, a lot of trainees are behind this, but you have to remember they're also behind an experience in outpatients and uh, pretty much every aspect of the job apart from emergency care. And even that's been uh, threatened a little bit where people have been redeployed. So um, the overall picture is that about a third of trainees on, are on an outcome 10 after the last round of ARCPs. And this is of course a no fault ARCP outcome because training has been impacted uh, because of COVID, but an outcome 10.1 uh, equates probably to a no-fault outcome too. There are things to be worked on before the next ARCP, but don't need extension of training. And um, about um, an eighth, one in eight trainees in, S- in ST8 are an outcome 10.2. So this is like a no-fault outcome three, where training has to be extended in order to accommodate uh, what's been uh, affected by COVID. And of course, as the winter pressures plus the second wave of COVID have uh, an an impact on training, that these outcome ones and these third of trainees will become outcome uh, 10.2s and outcome standard outcome ones will drift into outcome 10.1 and 10.2. So there's a massive looming crisis in surgical training at the moment. The front of the train, as we say, has hit the buffers and we just, the rest of the train is about to plough in behind it. And 
you know, and it, it's, it has affects everybody, you know, not only trainees, but trainers, and there will be a bulge in training uh, numbers. And so bulging salaries, and it's going to be incredibly cost, uh, expensive uh, to uh, HE and to the government to extend training. So it's in everybody's interest to put this right from trainees, trainers, um, schools of surgery, HE and other uh, statutory education bodies, Department of Health, employers, and ultimately uh, to the benefit of the patients to put this right, to put training right in the centre of any um, COVID recovery plan. And we produced a joint document, uh, JCST, with ASSET, BOTA and COPS, the Confederation of Postgraduate Schools of Surgery, uh, which has uh, made some suggestions locally, na uh, regionally and nationally to, uh, to try and address this. And it is everybody's problem and everybody needs to be part of the solution. So I'd urge everyone to have a look at that document and see what they can pick up. There's lots of just very obvious but sensible suggestions for how to do little things to improve training. And if everyone can pick up some or all of those suggestions, then we can move a long way to minimising the effect of COVID. But COVID is still going to have an effect. I suppose the second thing is the new curricula. Um, I think it's very positive. We had to delay the uh, start of new curricula from August this year because of COVID to August 2021. But it's an outcomes-based curriculum. It's the biggest change since 2007. I think it's going to have a very positive impact on training, both through the fact that you can finish training when you've developed the requisite skills to be a day one consultant in that specialty. And um, also the multiple consultant report the, um, was going to be the main assessment tool in the, uh, in the uh, new curricula, uh, along with the equivalent trainee self-assessment using the same tool, are going to be very powerful ways of meaning that effective bespoke uh, feedback is generated for each trainee in the middle of and towards the end of the placement. So that the learn that feeds directly into the learning agreements and so the priorities of that train of that placement can be adjusted according to the specific needs of the trainee identified both by themselves and by trainers so if you know where you are and you know what the end point is it's much easier to adjust what you do to get to the end point um, in a in a more efficient uh, but still safe way and the mcr is going to come in with the new curriculum but you can practice it now um, you can go on ISCP in the top right hand corner, uh, you can see a link to the trial MCR and I would encourage everyone to use it for the changeover either um, at the end of January or at the end of March depending on when you, uh, when you change jobs. It, it really is a good thing, everyone's going to have to use it so I suggest everyone generates good feedback now in order just to pick up some of those Covid deficits as well. I just echo uh, everything you say, John. Really, and uh, and feel, I feel really sorry for uh, for trainees at the moment in this in this awful predicament. And um, I guess I guess the you know the human element, the the uncertainty of what's going to go on in the future. I think I think if we have a third wave, or if it if it runs into um, into another year or so, I think I'm right in saying, John, that uh, probably almost every trainee will then will then be on a COVID outcome. Um, I suppose looking looking if there is a bright side, perhaps um, certainly looking at the MRCS results recently, and I guess I guess people have had a had a bit more time to study. So um, you look at the Part A results, and they're they're over 40, 42, 43 percent, which is the highest it's been in years. Um, 
the the past mark was actually raised and there was and there was some fallout from that thinking that um you know why why has this happened it was a slightly easier exam in fact and that's why the past mark was raised from from 70 to 76 percent and very robust uh, standard setting is done around the mrcs um, but despite raising that pass mark, um, because it was a slightly easier exam, the pass rate was 43% for the, the Part A. Uh, and looking at the OSCE results as well, I mean, it's, it's the highest uh, pass rate that we've had, uh, I think, in years at about 75 to 80%. Uh, pass rate at the, the recent OSCE. So um, people, people, I guess, are studying using the time wisely to study, which, which is great. But, but of course, the hold up with the, the FRCS, um, you know, the move to, to online exams, the lack of patience in the exams and things, it's, it's such a concern. And, um, you know, we, we empathise with everyone, you know, um, trainees as well as trainers, John, as you, as you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, I know uh, JCST has spoken about... Um, training situations and created the hashtag no training today no surgeons tomorrow um but what would you be what would be your main messages to the trainees currently affected by the COVID-19 situation well for me I think the first thing is you know I completely sympathize you know there's a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty produces anxiety and so you know we I think everybody involved in training feels feels this everyone involved in training was a trainee and um, and knows how anxious it can you can make you going through certainly critical progression points or come to the end of training uh, in any case and um, this this situation really doesn't help so I think that's the first thing to say that you know it's just extend sympathy to to everybody who's uh, who's worried about things at the moment I mean the the hashtag really does what it says in a tin that if we don't train now we won't have uh, any surgeons in quite short order. If people's training is extended, then the anticipated supply of new consultants into the workforce won't happen. And this is in a, in, at a time when uh, early retirements uh, are showing no signs of slowing, and perhaps might even get worse through COVID and through the ongoing other pressures to do with taxation, et cetera, that uh, are making people choose to, to leave earlier than they might otherwise have done. So it's a big problem for the health service and employers overall. Um, it's in everyone's interests to support what uh, to support trainees and the statutory education bodies, so HE and their national equivalents and the GMC, really are quite genuinely committed to minimising the effects of COVID on progression uh, as much as possible. So, for instance, with the outcome tens, the uh, the curriculum derogations that have been allowed, the changes to uh, the essential criteria for national selection, all to accommodate the impact of COVID. And I think the, the thing to remember is that, you know, it's not just the colleges or anybody else, it, it's, or JCSTs, everybody from the coalface to government is part of the solution to get training back on track, because the alternative has such a huge impact on the provision of the service to patients. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more with you, uh, John, really. Um, what resources are out there? You've mentioned some before, but what resources are out there to help these trainings? Well, so the, yeah, so this I, th I think um, there's the uh, the document that was produced, and I say it's you know there's, there's there's no rocket science in there at all. It's all perfectly obvious solutions, but all drawn together in in one document. And people obviously can add to those. Uh, you know, the hashtag no no surgeons no training today. Um, is is, uh, is is full of other people's suggestions as well. So have a look what there is out there. 
and just make some obvious things. But it's things like, you know, protecting people coming to critical progression points from redeployment. Um, you know, if you're coming, if you're a second year core training or you're coming to ST6 or beyond, then you probably should be protected from redeployment because those are critical stages. And, and uh, you can, it's more easy to make it up in those non-critical parts of training. And then just get the most out of every opportunity, normalize uh, access to, um, to the independent sector, um, and to um, and also just to remember training. It's all very easy for trainee for trainers to say, "Well, I can do you know half as many of these cases again," as I heard somebody quite prominent say on a on a, on a webinar lately. And it was very disappointing because that's not the point. You know, we need to we need to include trainees to, in addressing the COVID backlog. And you have to remember that the trainee the trust get trainees for free during the day. The salary salary and on costs are paid for by uh, the uh, statutory education providers and tariff goes to that. And so all trainees are doing is adding to the income of the trust by uh, seeing and treating patients uh, alongside trainers. And so it's a, it's of no cost. There's some people just need to remember the the huge just bottom line that trainees uh, contribute to the service. And, and remember them in, in, in training because of course they are colleagues of tomorrow. In terms of other resources that that uh, that uh, COVID's brought, it's 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 that, that force of everybody to use existing platforms such as Zoom and Teams, etc. And you can now deliver really excellent things uh, remotely. We don't need to go to take a day or two days to travel to somewhere to speak to a group of people. We can do it as we are now um, online very easily. And so you can scale teaching and get very high quality teaching delivered to a national group very, very easily for minimal cost. And I think that's one of the great benefits of that. Um, examples would be what ENT have done, uh, what vascular surgery are doing, et cetera. So you can get the absolute world-class experts in the room with you uh, for, for minimal cost and just a little bit of organization. So I think that's gonna be one of the great legacies of COVID. And of course you can do that with, um, other skills as well, so you can you can well, you can mentor and coach mo more easily because you don't have to go to somebody else's place of work to discuss with them. And the face to face uh, over a screen we're much more used to now seems to work quite well. So mentor and coaching got a lot easier, and skills can be taught remotely as well. So again, especially more basic ones, all you need is a bit of, a bit of your simulation kit. Uh, so a box and a couple of laparoscopic instruments, say, or even just a suturing jig and put your uh, smartphone next to it and link it to, to an online um, conferencing platform. And so the trainer can interact with as many trainees as, as it feels. We've done this before uh, experimentally and found that there really is no deficit to the learning outcomes, but it was just before its time and just before people, you know, people were still quite wedded to the idea of traveling to somewhere. But I think, again, it's gonna be much easier to scale these things and deliver it more remotely. And, um, you know, and, and simulation, of course, it is all there. You have to remember that simulation, I think, kind of loses quite a lot as you get to the more uh, complex end of, of training. But it's, it's still, you know, you can still use that. It's not a substitute and you still need a lot of real life experience. I'm just, um, just, just before I came on this podcast, I was going through um, some of the, uh, the, the outputs of uh, a couple of PhDs I'm supervising with some colleagues at the university's campus in China and AI. And there really are some very, very interesting, uh, easy to use AI solutions uh, coming up in surgical training. So not ready yet, but watch this space over the next few years.
Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think using every opportunity, and I, I would always say, uh, every case should be a training opportunity in some, in some shape or form. And um, um, you know, even if it's something really, really complicated, you know, get the trainees involved. Let, let them do something. You know, try and use every opportunity you possibly can. You mentioned the, the independent sector, um, John, as well, which, uh, which which I think is a great resource. Um, and of course, we're, mo we're moving on to these uh, online platforms, both for, uh, for teaching, for training, um, for virtual ARCPs now, um, and of course, examinations. Uh, we've just uh, published a series of articles. They're, they're freely available because they're COVID related. So, so all COVID publications are open access. Um, anyone can get hold of them. Uh, so, three, uh, so three publications on um, one on getting the best out of uh, out of virtual meetings and um, and things. Another one on virtual ARCP and trainee assessment, uh, and that paper is already being used by HEE to uh, to streamline virtual ARCPs. Uh, and a third one, which is just about to be published, uh, on on getting the best out of virtual exams, both for. Uh, examiners uh, and candidates as well. So, so op optimizing yourself, ready, ready for the exam. Um, you know, treat it. It's a kind of full situation, really. You might, you might be doing your your examination at home, for example, and you know that can lower your guard in terms of in terms of professionalism and things. And you know, thinking about lots and lots and lots of different things. Um, but interesting what you said, John, about uh, about traveling to meetings and things. I mean, there's there's a paper, I think, published a few years ago in the BMJ doing a survey of uh, trainees going to ARCPs. And um, one of them said uh, they, ha they had to travel right over to the other side of the region. So they spent two and a half hours um, only to be told they had an outcome one or whatever. And there was there's obviously no. Um, no trainee feedback at that point and they drove back again so they saw that as a complete and utter waste of time which which of course it is um so there are there are some advantages i guess to the to the uh, current situation um and albeit the the overall thing is just it's just one of um anxiety and um you know concern for everyone isn't it yeah yeah i, I just i quite agree with all with all that and just to sort of pick up the independent sector and there's been a lot of confusion around this, uh, I think through just lack of information that might not have filtered down to particular hospitals. There, there, should, there is no barrier to anybody uh, being trained on NHS patients in independent sector hospitals through indemnity, through health checks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if people are finding problems with this, then I think first discuss with, you, with your trainer and uh, ask them to try and sort it out with the hospital. But if there's still no look, then speak to your TPD who will escalate it through the head of school and the dean who will in turn have a chat with the independent sector provider. There is no barrier to independent sector. The agreement is for the independent sector to provide training uh, to on uh, NHS patients. Mm, indeed. And, uh, we've seen some radical advances in technology uh, recently, particularly in medical education. And Prof Lund, you mentioned some um, of your PhD students. Um, how do you see technology supporting training, and is this the future? Well, I think all those ways <clears throat> I mentioned um, before, you know, <clears throat> when everyone thinks of, of technology, they immediately think of, uh, you know, a robot or something like that. And it's much more low-tech than that. A lot of learning, as I said, is going, you know, will be delivered uh, to a much higher standard uh, through this. And, of course, through, through platforms like this, 
And of course, the advantage of this, it's, it's in the jargon, a reusable learning object that you have the session and it's not gone forever. It's recorded and freely accessible or um, on, on easy to access platforms such as YouTube afterwards. And so, yeah, that's, that's a massive plus uh, when you compare to driving wherever, perhaps having to stay in a hotel overnight to, to get there for the morning session and then watching something that when it's gone, it's gone. So I think that's, that's a big plus. I talked about the skills thing. I do think we have to be careful with, with things that look like magic. You know, we all like to have new toys and we all like the exciting robot or something, but I think we'd have to be careful before spending a lot of uh, training resource and money on things that haven't been evaluated. And, uh, you know, I think that's really, there are probably much cheaper, more effective, generalizable solutions before we move to, to simulation. And simulation is only ever going to be an adjunct to training. It's never going to be a substitute for training. And uh, so it's just finding its place and finding its right value uh, when you, with, with the payoff against effectiveness. And um, will there be a reduction in the expectation of what trainees can reasonably achieve in core surgical training and ST selection this year or even next year? So for, for selection, um, we've uh, we're engaged with MDRS, and obviously there were MDRS were in a bit of a, the, med, the medical dental um, recruitment selection, which is a, is a, is the wing of uh, HE that uh, organise and and provide uh, selection processes through local offices, uh, so you know through deaneries, and um, the the pandemic started pretty much when most of the rounds of um, uh, ST3 plus selection were just about to take place. They had to turn around very rapidly. And, you know, I, th I think perhaps if they'd had more time, things would have been differently, would have done been slightly differently in some areas. However, over the uh, intervening time, they've had a lot of time to think this and really have applied themselves. So I think this year's selection process, which is going to happen completely online, is uh, about as fair as it possibly can be in the circumstances while still being deliverable. And I think it is very fair. They've been very transparent. If you look at the MDRS website, all the information that anybody needs for the applicant guide and the interview is already there. And adjustments have been made to recognize the impact of COVID. For instance, uh, you can go to selection and be selected if you're on outcome 10.1. So you haven't necessarily um, finished everything you need to do in uh, core training, but you can still apply and be selected. And the only proviso is that you should address those requirements by the end of uh, your, by the time of your next ARCP in ST3. So there is accommodation made for that. Things like courses, which have been essential criteria before, are not uh, mandated this year. So you don't have to have a valid ATLS certificate, for instance, to, um, to be uh, long-listed for uh, TNO selection, for instance. So I think a lot of accommodations being made. Now, obviously, the as I'm speaking, the deadline for application is today at uh, 4 p.m. So by the time people listen to this, then the deadline's over. But uh, also, the, the I think the interview process online will be will be very good as well. That the panels will ask uh, questions. The mark schemes have been adjusted to accommodate for the impact of COVID. So I think it's all going to be uh, very fair and transparent. And uh, MDRS will conduct their usual uh, quality impact assessment afterwards to ensure that no groups have been uh, 
inadvertently uh, discriminated against because of the move to online exams. The data we've seen so far from those just out this year has been very reassuring from that perspective, even on last year's um, perhaps slightly imperfect process. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, these things and what, what people are expecting, John, isn't it, that it's, it's a fair and transparent process. Um, I mean, we, we now have all the, all the national selection data going back seven years from uh, UK Med, uh, which has uh, uh, taken us a considerable length of time to get hold of. But we've, we've already published on um, MRCS performance predicting um, national selection and, um, you know, very, very nice, um, uh, very nice correlation uh, in general and vascular surgery. That was uh, published in BJS a couple of years ago. Um, so I think you know, fair and transparent process. Realizing the 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 online nature of the um, of the selection. Uh, in fact, by the time that this podcast goes out, uh, hopefully there's there's a paper we're about to publish in the annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England about um, national selection processes and uh, virtual and learning from other. Um, high reliability org, uh, organizations. So, so for example, aviation at the moment are doing a lot of their uh, selection online and learning, you know, learning how to come across well at um, an online situation. So uh, please, please do read that. That, that should be available uh, imminently. Excellent. Thank you. Mm, we're, we're speaking of adaptations. The GMC has asked uh, to see more generalist training as a result of the pandemic. Is this something that we should expect to see in all specialities? And is super speci specialization seem to be a thing of the past? So I think the, the GMC's message and the message from statutory education bodies applies to medicine as a whole. And so, and, and I think a lot of the concern is about specialization uh, across medicine. There are over 90 medical specialties, I think. And but it's about it's balancing generalization with the USP of your specialty. And so surgeons' generality is in the, un, treating the unselected take. And I think that's where the generality is. Surgical specialists and other craft specialists, USP is doing that craft and being trained to do that. And um, you know that you, in, a, in, a, in an environment where Patients are becoming more elderly, the population becoming more elderly, patients becoming coming with more comorbidities, more complex comorbidities, with more complex polypharmacy, with frailty issues, with social care issues after discharge. To expect one group of professionals to do all of that is probably too much. And if you think, you know, I remember reading a stat from the USA, which I'm sure applies almost equally to here, that 20% of admissions to hospital are due to drug interactions. And I think the last thing you need is a group of people who really center of training is not about treating patients with complex comorbidities and polypharmacy with some knowledge uh, and just need, just every surgeons will need support not for everybody, you know, it's simple things are simple, we're all doctors after all, but for more complex patients, we will always need support. And as things develop along that same direction, which is they always, that direction travel seems to be that way, that we're going to continue to need that support. So multidisciplinary working 
rather than generalism for surgery, I think is probably going to be the model to provide the optimal care for patients uh, over the next few years. I mean, I think I think um, um, just to add add to that, John. Really, I guess I guess as a specialist, there's a there's a saying: a specialist knows more and more about less and less. And actually, reversing that and and becoming a generalist, you you almost potentially compromise patient care on in all in all the areas you mentioned. Really, and um, I can't see how how you can be uh, an expert across um, across the remit of surgery or um, or medicine. I just I just don't think it's possible. Yeah. So I think it's a I think where we are with the curricula is that we sh the output of the curriculum should be somebody who is able to look after the, the unselected take, the generality of the specialty, and depending on the specialty, develop a special interest area which maps the needs of the service. You know we do have to recognise that training should address the needs of the patients and the service, and uh, and it can and but CCT takes you to a certain point. And people's careers and skill sets and scope of practice will continue to develop according to the local needs of the service and the environment in which they find themselves. And that changes over the years. I think of how my, my scope of practice has, has changed and moved and drifted uh, in, all you know, in several directions um, since I was appointed. Um, and you know, that will continue to be, you have to be able to respond to market forces and so the output of the curriculum needs to be generalist so that a graduate of the scheme can be appointable anywhere in the country but that's just the first stage in professional development and then you can go on to become more or less generalist thereafter depending on where you work. Thank you. Um, at the moment we know that uh, surgical trainees are not getting as much operating. You mentioned uh, less than 50% of the logbooks and um, some consultants are actually in a similar boat. Um, how do we keep the trainees competent uh, or in fact gain the competencies um, if their consultant colleagues need the numbers in order to keep themselves competent? What's the current advice or guidance on that? We've, we've um, I mean, it's it's an evolving area, John, isn't it really this? And uh, I mean, I guess with what with my with my human factors uh, hat on again i look to other organizations and um so in aviation we talk we talk about currency and um you know are you are you current and safe to fly um so again there's um, there's a paper published recently again it's uh, freely available open access about um, about surgical currency and uh um, you know, and returning to practice or um, or reducing your surgical practice, whether that be as a consultant or as a trainee. And I guess it's related to experience. It's related to numbers that you've done. Um, it's related to expertise and where and where you are on the on the training pathway. But um, um, an evolving area, John. I think, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, I think, as you said earlier, Peter, that the, there should be no part of the case a trainee can't do some yeah. of. Absolutely. So no matter where you are in your consultant career, that um, you know, and when you, it, without doubt, when you when you're starting, you probably want to establish yourself and do probably a bit more of the case and feel slightly more reticent to let some of it go. And perhaps you should have with you a, a trainee that perhaps can do simpler parts of the operation rather than a trainee that whose requirements are the more complex parts of the operation. But the trainee should do some of every operation where you are, particularly at the moment. In terms of numbers, you know, so if, I mean, I think they're probably going out of fashion a little bit. Colorectal surgery has been wedded to numbers of cancer operations. It's been rather arbitrary 
uh, for some time. And I think fortunately that the, the emphasis on that is going. But me as a consultant, if I let a trainee do the whole case, it still counts as one of my numbers. So in, in that in that in that way that um, we should do. It. But you've got to remember that the, the patient needs to be safe. But I think that if you're a consultant, unless you've been off work for a whole year, in which case that you should engage in some return to work package and a phased return, perhaps operating with consultant, with the consultant colleagues while you get back up to speed again to protect patients, that there is no reason that training can't continue, um, you know, and everybody, everybody gets back up to full speed um, together. There's, there's, there's absolutely no reason for trainers to exclude trainees from anything. Prof. Brennan, you mentioned about human factors. It's yeah. uh, been, uh, gaining a lot of traction over the last number of years. Is there something that we can expect uh, to feature more in surgical training, maybe included in examinations? Well, I'm just uh, um, I'm just on a bit of a high today, actually, and uh, um, uh, in fact, the BMJ have just have just literally published uh, a human factors article about Santa Claus and how and how he how he manages to do it. So uh, certainly certainly gaining lots of traction. Again, again, please have a look at that. It's a hopefully quite amusing article that um, uh, is relevant across. Um, across medicine. Um, I mean, you'll be aware that, uh, that the GMC have introduced human factors as part of their generic professional capabilities. Um, so uh, they are expecting um, human factors um, recognition and I guess um, some form of training and education throughout uh, a doctor's career. Um, uh, I've spoken at a fairly high level at the GMC about HF and in fact they do recognise now that uh, human factors uh, are responsible for for a lot of error, and um, if if in an unfortunate situation that one of us gets referred to the GMC, that that will then be considered. Um, I think I think I mean there's the knots course uh, out there at the moment, isn't there for the uh, from Edinburgh? Um, I can tell you now that the the English English College are very very keen to develop uh, a human factors course. Um, it's not it's not just about operating. It's about you know it's about recognizing how we fit in as part of a team. It's about low ingredients. It's about effective communication. Uh, it's about our own situational awareness. Um, and not getting tunnel vision, just operating, you know, down a deep dark hole, and not thinking about the bigger, the bigger picture. Um, um, so the answer is yes. Whether, whether it's formally assessed or not, um, I don't know. Uh, certainly at the MRCS, I think we are we are thinking about having having some sort of uh, human factors assessment as part of the MRCS exam in due course, uh, and that and that's something that I'm that I introduced as, uh, as part of the major revision of the exam, which I led um, a year or two back. But of course, given COVID, things, uh, things have gone on the back burner a little bit, but um, very, very important area. And, that, um, and that's why really at the, um, the Gray Surgical Anatomy that you, that you mentioned earlier, Johnny, that you know, at the very, very start of that, of that book, there's uh, a chapter about minimizing error in the operating theater. So, so before you pick up a scalpel, you, you should understand how error happens and how you should reduce it. I, I think that's, um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the other thing is that it's, it's what you said, Peter, about the, about the GMC. So the, the um, Generic Professional Capabilities Framework, which is one of the two key documents which form the basis of the new curricula, um, is very clear about in incorporating all these, what people sometimes refer to as soft skills, but they are absolutely central and they are those things that make you into a good and safe doctor. 
uh, you know, your interaction with patients, your interaction with the staff, and all these things are just incredibly important. And they will be assessed in the workplace, of course, through the multiple consultant report, the first part of which asks trainers to make uh, a judgment about um, trainees progressing appropriately for stage in the development of all those generic professional capabilities. And what that allows, and most people will of course be just doing this naturally, but what it allows people to do is to, is to pick up trainees who need a bit of feedback because they are not quite performing as well as they might do in these particular crucial areas that have been really quite hard to pick up through work-based assessments previously and, and identify that and then provide some actual specific feedback on what needs to be addressed through the generic professional capability items themselves or any free text they want to do. And of course, when we, we had a trainee who, when we first started doing the trial MCR over a year ago, who was struggling in this area. And so we did an MCR and identified some of these areas. And I sat down with them afterwards and we went through this. And, you know, I think that they, they were a bit shocked to hear this because, you know, and you obviously tried to do it in a, in a very supportive way. And then a couple of days later, when they'd gone away and thought about it, I got an email back saying, thanks very much. I hadn't realised that um, that's how I was. I asked some other people and they said that they very much recognised the things that are being flagged up. And um, I, after having spending a difficult weekend thinking about this, I'm going to see what I can do to change and really, really turn things around. It really was. It just no one had pointed, been able to point out to them that this, this was an ongoing area that needed addressing and if people don't engage and or don't rectify themselves in the course the knots and and other courses are available and will be available are there to to help address these things but it really is important to pick these things up early to so people can modify their behaviors through insight uh, and do something about them before you get to a crisis at the end of training or even worse a crisis after appointment that then leads quite quickly to suspension which is you know, yeah. very high risk time those first couple of years in independent practice. I mean, you, you only have to look at the GMC referrals and um, most, I think about 80% of GMC referral is, is actually due to conduct, um, you know, professionalism, communication issues, rather than technical expertise. So just, just emphasises really the, um, the importance of these of these soft inverted commas skills skills john uh, in fact we've just recently got got the gmc data on fitness to practice for surgeons which we've been granted access to and we're and we're linking that into um mrcs frcs and uh, arcp outcomes um there's an argument that uh, requiring trainees to do audit quips uh, and research dilutes good research uh, should we be changing things to allow those who are keen to become academic surgeons to produce research and others to collaborate to gain understanding of how to read and interpret without having to write protocols, apply for funding, etc.? Is the, is the current system uh, fit for purpose or outdated and uh, need to reflect the current training? So the new curricula is going to change the requirements for research. All these things are important. It's very important for all doctors to be analytical, to be able to review evidence so that they can implement best practice uh, in their own practice and participate on some participate on some level in that is probably central to be a doctor. And this is recognized in generic professional capabilities where 
research, et cetera, has its own domain within this one of the nine domains of generic professional capabilities. And so the new curricula recognizes that and ask, will ask trainees to demonstrate that they uh, have uh, met the requirements of this domain. Formal research is, is, is something else and it's probably not for everybody. There are pretty well established academic pathways uh, now uh, but not everybody needs to follow that to do research. Um, and so, you know, I think if you're interested at all, you should do it and you, you should dip your toe in the water. And you only way you know if you're interested, if you do it a bit. And collaborations, an important part of that, it introduces you to the, um, to the framework of research uh, in the NHS. And it probably as a, as a consultant, it's the part of research the vast majority of consultants are going to actually involved in the system is probably gone too far over now to um, people who are not part of established research organizations to generate their own research questions because you won't get the support from R&D etc so it's very difficult to take your own research ideas uh, very far if you're uh, in a in a, an NHS hospital without links to a university and other support, which, and I think the pendulum swung too far there and I, I'd be looking for a, a, a swing back from there, but getting involved in collaborative research, you know, more people, better answers, uh, narrow confidence intervals, you can find the difference uh, more easily, things get done quicker. So I would encourage everybody to participate in collaborative research. And, um, you know, it, it's something else to do, you know, the, the, one of the reasons that I like been involved in research is it just gives me something else to do during the week and everybody needs different strings to their bow to uh, keep themselves fresh and uh, avoid burnout yeah i think that's um i think that's very well said john i mean i i you know research research encompasses a whole whole range of different things doesn't it it's not just you know the clinical trials or the um, nihr portfolio and things um I think research, it doesn't make you a better technical surgeon. Um, you know, it, it's, um, uh, in fact, when I, when I did my MD thesis, uh, I stood out of training for, for a year or so, and I came back and it took me a little while to come, to come back up to speed. Um, I mean, my, my own background, I'm, I'm very much an NHS surgeon. I have a personal chair. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not in the same league as the, as the academic researchers, but, but you do things, John, because, because you want to make a difference because just, just all the things you've said, really. So, so the HF stuff and things, um, you know, that's, that's, that's hopefully helping others, um, others make a difference. And it gives you a really good uh, feeling that you are, that you are making a difference, uh, but do it because you want to do it rather than because you have to, I think that would be my advice. Um, but lots of time on our hands so at the moment so yes <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I, th I think you've been a bit unfair to yourself uh, there uh, <laughs> no 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 no, but, no. Uh, no 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 i'm very much it's having six papers published this week so um you know it's worth yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah no no i'm very much you know i mean people people see the title and i think oh he doesn't he doesn't do any op uh, operating i'm very much an nhs jobbing surgeon with a, with an academic interest and i think i think collaboration john i mean that's the that's the key to it and so you know i've been really lucky or fortunate whatever whatever way you want to look at it i collaborate with lots of people including your good self johnny i mean we've we've published several Indeed. several papers already and um you know i love i love enthusiastic people and i love helping people that you know that want to help want to help themselves and if i can facilitate 
I see myself a bit like an enzyme or catalyst, you know, that I kind of, I help and facilitate people. It's just get, just get such a buzz out of it really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from that point of view, it's the same as training at all, isn't it? The, the great yeah. part of training is seeing somebody develop and uh, just see them getting better and see them becoming more comfortable and more happy with themselves and developing as a, as a person and a professional. And there, there really is nothing more satisfying than that. Yeah, it gives you such a buzz, doesn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll move on to the last question. Um, there has been much musings on Twitter about high-stake examinations that we have in the UK, such as the MRCS and the FRCS. Uh, the suggestion is to move to continuous assessments, like is seen across the water with our US colleagues. Is this something that you could envision being in the future pipeline here or a pipe dream? Um, right, well... Um, I think there's a couple of things to think about. I think at the moment, the public uh, and probably the regulator want a summative assessment, um, you know, and the, pub, the public, um, you know, they do, they do want some, some form of um, a formal assessment to, to actually judge you as a, um, as a surgeon. Now, now the MRCS doesn't, doesn't make you a good surgeon. Let's be honest. You know, it's a, it's, it's um, a lot of theory and practical application, but it, but it's not about technical surgery. I mean, we've, We've actually published um, loads already about about predictive validity, and we're just about to publish about about medical school assessments, and even even going back beyond beyond that to UCAT scores and things, and that does predict performance in MRCS at ARCP and indeed FRCS. So uh, a continual uh, assessment, I think, I think would would be a natural progression, but whether the regulator or the public or government would would allow that is. Um, is another matter, Johnny. I don't know what you think, John. No, I, I remember reading some years ago that A-level grades are the best predictor of performance at medical school yeah. and beyond. Um, clever people, or people who are good at exams are good at exams. I think yeah. it, may, it may say no more than that. I mean, you're the expert and I'm not, but it, you know, the headline could be that, couldn't it? Um, in, in terms of the, of the exams, you know, I, th I think that there probably needs to be an independent knowledge test, formal knowledge test, uh, outside the workplace, because it is quite difficult, I think, to for to to assess breadth and depth of knowledge in a in a formal way uh, in in training contact. So I think there's always going to be that, and then I think the the development of exams will probably be about how much of the clinical and patient interaction aspect is retained within exams. So, uh, and I think what we have to do is, is see how well the MCR runs both the informative and summative uh, parts of that. So if, if the MCR and the feedback and the assessment of the workplace, you know, really upgrades workplace-based assessment, then it may be that we don't need to rely on exams to take an external snapshot view of that, perhaps done under slightly artificial circumstances. Because it's obviously for the best face validity, it's important that we observe people doing these things in the environment in which they work. To get the to get a real assessment of of their performance there, and I'm not sure that clinical exams necessarily do that. Urology, for obvious reasons, given their clinical examination, don't have a never had a clinical component in their examination, and they have uh, just as good outcome metrics uh, for the examination and also post exam performance as any other specialty. So I don't think it's an absolute requirement. I think it's going to take a long time to change if it changes at all. So, but you know, it could be the direction of travel. But certainly an independent knowledge test, I think, will always be there and should always be there. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much um, for a very informative session.
uh, give give me food for thought anyway, and hopefully a lot of others listening, um, and hopefully cleared up a lot of ambiguity that's out there and stress and anxiety that's caused by that. Um, so thank you both. No, thank you very much for asking me, Johnny. It was great to talk for nearly an hour all by myself. Yeah. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think I think the fu- the final thing to say is, you know, make sure that you look after yourself. You know, it's a r- really difficult time, and you know, we so- we sometimes forget. You know, we get we get sucked up in the the COVID and our and our busy jobs and things. You must 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 take time to look after yourself. It's just so important. I mean, we mentioned burnout earlier, but uh, you know, absolutely crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would completely second that. No, well, thanks, Johnny, very much. I really enjoyed it. So that's it for this episode of the BMJ Military Health Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to our guests and to our production team. Remember, you can never miss an episode again by subscribing to our podcast. And we look forward to joining you next time.